from Bravery Media, this is Thought Feeder. Welcome. My name is Joel Goodman. With me, as always, is the unmistakable John Steven Stancil. And we are very excited to have the executive director of client strategy from Ology. Do you want me to call you Joe or Joseph? You can call me Joe. What Joe. do you want the public to call you? <laughs> Joe. You can call me Joe. My family calls me Joey. Byline is Joseph. There we go. Uh, Joe, Joe, Joseph in air quotes, master. Joe, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, I've, I've been a big fan of this for a long time, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you be here. Yeah, we've talked so much on, on Twitter, and it's nice to like actually in-person sort of chat. But for those that don't know you, Joe, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us about what you do, your, your history in higher ed, and, and, and where you are now. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I, I'm uh, currently executive director of client strategy at Ology, which is it's a is a pretty new role that straddles uh, like account management and business development. So I'm currently really, really in the weeds learning uh, that whole part of the business because before this position, I spent 12 years in higher ed. Let me see if I can get this right. Over 12 years, I reported to five deans at three colleges, at two universities in Philadelphia, one large public, one large private. And then most recently for or nearly five years was the uh, AVP of marketing and digital strategy at Drexel University. Um, and that was you know a great role where I got to uh, run front-end web development and social media governance and strategy and all paid media and relationships with our external vendors and um, the ambition can't wait. Um, reputational elevation campaign. Um, so it was a great time and it kind of paved the way for the role that I'm in now. That that brings up a, a question we already had. So t- can you tell us a little bit about that ambition can't wait campaign? Um, because that was something that was that was really impressive and I'd like to hear more about that. Ambition can't wait was actually, you know, the the product I believe of a um a, a desire by Drexel to get the word out about co-op, its cooperative education program. Now Drexel students are not, you know, they go to school year round. They do an average of three co-ops, these six month paid positions. And when they graduate, they, um, you know, end up knowing not just what they want to do with the career, but also what they don't want to do because they usually figure that out in school. It's in, it's insanely rewarding for the students. The outcomes are there, but for a marketer, you know, to have that unique selling point is gold and Drexel really does have that. So started, I think, 2015 when I was at Temple, I think the Genesis. And um, Ogilvy, big Manhattan firm, like they they developed the original concepts for Ambition Can't Wait. Um, and they were these very beautiful, large, uh, cost-prohibitive images of people with ambition floating out of their bodies. Um, and there, it was like there was an arts and media ambition with trouble and base clefts. There was a health sciences ambition. And there weren't many words. Um, when I came back to Drexel in 2017, the campaign had launched 2016. You know, in, in the role that I came back to do, I was in charge of executing the campaign. And, you know, a buddy of mine who was my counterpart in admissions marketing, his name's Craig Campus there. We had stayed in touch when I was at Temple because I had been at Drexel, went to Temple and came back for that central role. And we just started talking. Let's take this in-house and let's evolve it. So we were on two different teams, enrollment management and then central marketing. And we kind of put together the skunk works and we pitched it internally and we pitched it to trustees. And, you know, 
wow, what an insanely rewarding experience it was when they actually said, yeah, do this. So, you know, we had to come up with like a fake org chart because our teams were not on the same team and, you know, a meeting cadence and creative services and project management and then media. So uh, it's been in market since 2016, evolved in 2017, and uh, it's still going. And, you know, I'm so I'm, I'm actually looking for the ads because I'm not there anymore. Every day I'm like, ooh, I can't wait because this is the time of year when it would launch. You know, the campaign was meant to mirror the enrollment cycle. So launches in September and then and really does mimic, you know, goes hard till May 1, till decision day. So it's not an enrollment campaign. It's an awareness campaign. And, yeah. you know, that was a question we had to answer nonstop by everyone, both in the industry, externally and internally. Yeah, it's a really impressive campaign. It's one of my favorites in higher ed. And anybody who's listening is not familiar, like, Google it, take a look. Um, I love the stuff that y'all put on social for it. Um, it was just absolutely gorgeous. I think I used it as an example for some stuff that we wanted to do when I, uh, when I was still working at a university. So yeah, kudos to that. It was some incredible work. You know something too, JS? Uh, we were so tickled when we found that out. Um, and every time people brought it up and asked questions about it, because people called a lot to ask the biggest validation that we got or that I got, I can't speak for anyone else was always externally. It was always when people like you guys said, wow, I really, I really dig this. We said before we started recording that we were not going to talk about like music and guitar stuff, but like to to what you said (laughs) just then, it's like when, when I used to play in bands, you'd always play to the three guys with like their arms crossed sitting in the back that were other musicians, like they're the ones that know, like if you slip up, they're the ones that like can tell, like if your band is really tight and playing well together versus just the average listener is like, Oh, this is a band, live band. Great. And those guys, when they come up to you after the show, I'm like, man, good job. Like that's when you know, like, okay, yeah, that, that was good. So it's like you just, game. You just see that game. little smile on their face mm-hmm. in the back. Yeah. Of the they're, room. they're not going to come up to you and tell you you're great. They'll be like, <laughs> Yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all had a tight set tonight. And be like, oh, <laughs> you're over the moon. You're so good at these, and now it's a hundred percent true. I remember I was at the Starland Ballroom probably in 2005, back when Kings of Leon were still looked like you know the band, like the Woodstock, the band with the beards before they went kind of Euro glam, oh yeah, rock. And uh, I remember being in the front and and just like kind of, I kept like making eye contact with the bass player. I didn't mean to. But after the show, we were hanging out, and he went right up to me. He's like, what'd you think, man? And I was like, you guys rocked. And he's like, dude, I, I messed up the whole time. It's horrible. And I, I felt so cool that he recognized that I was a musician. He knew it because I was you know, I was staring at his fingers looking at where he's playing. <laughs> but, it, it, but it goes to like the opposite of that. This is so frustrating that like you get this external validation – and then, you know, from, from people from outside in the industry, like, oh, we love that. And then you go back internally and you're like having to fight for every single thing and be like, come on, don't you see this is great. <laughs> and that is a thing. I don't know if that's a higher ed thing. That's just a thing that's everywhere. Right. Well, and I mean, there's, there's that thing where in inside higher ed, you know, it's you know, the, the, the people that you can tell are musicians, uh, you know, you'll go up and ask them like how you did, but like internally everyone thinks they know how to do your job but they don't and they just kind of like show themselves in that light when they can't appreciate the the good work that's actually coming out of your office totally i mean to me the the thing that i'm most proud of about ambition can't wait is something that most people wouldn't say 
Um, it's actually the professional development opportunities that made for so many people on this cross departmental team from from web developers who were working on that microsite to to change it up at like all year long. We were always trying to optimize that site and make it stickier, make people want to read the stories to, you know, an SEO analyst on the team I'm thinking of, shout out Nigel, um, you know, to, to writers, designers, and, you know, to work on an, uh, on a campaign with that kind of national reach. You, you could look at performance metrics. We can have the goals. And, and if you get more money, you can get more metrics. You know what I mean? But people, people don't often think or talk about the professional development part. Of working on something like that. So Joe, you had mentioned a few minutes ago uh, this need to kind of put together a, a, a fake org chart combining a couple of different uh, departments and, and uh, you know, and structures together. And uh, we've all worked in campuses with weird um, that have tried to be cross-functional, but maybe haven't quite succeeded or at least haven't succeeded to the effect that we want to. And uh, we're wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about your experiences there and uh, the benefits that you see in putting those things together as an encouragement to our our friends at institutions that are trying to make this happen. Joe, I, I knew this question was coming, but I'm going to reframe <laughs> your question so that we can talk about this. Let's just talk about organizational structure in general. Let's talk about the fact. I'll put it out there. I was on a team that was a separate team from enrollment marketing. It was also a separate team from online marketing. Now, um, I don't know if those teams will be separate forever. They will at some point be merged into one team. But how was it that even up to 2015, 16, going into 2022, at a, at a large university, and this is not a Drexel thing, this is across the country, our structures are still built like they were. 15, 20 years ago. And why is it that people need to use words like skunk works to, to describe how they put together the ideal org to, to quote uh, Leonard Cohen to find the cracks where the light gets in? <laughs> I mean, it's it's true. And I think it applies to this wider conversation going on in our industry right now around people uh, leaving their, their college and university jobs, people finding work outside of higher ed. It's uh, and we, we talked a little bit about this with Steve App, but it's it's these archaic structures that exist within our institutions that aren't getting rethought and aren't getting reassessed for, you know, the way that you all worked constantly throughout the year to optimize the ambition can't wait microsite and and ad buys and everything else. Like why why aren't institutions looking at their structures and trying to figure out, OK, do we need this? And I think the time when people leave is kind of the perfect time to reassess. Do we need that role? Is there a way to kind of, you know, rejudge things inside to make it work better? I have a lot of thoughts about organizational <laughs> structure and organizational dynamics. Like I, if you were to ask some people who have reported to me in the past 10 years, they'd say, Joe loves a good reorg. I've reorganized teams so many times I, I built binders to hand to my senior vice president that's got new job descriptions where it's like, this is what we need to do. And, you know, I, I think I've benefited from being able to, over the years, report to some pretty great leaders who, who, who were willing to trust me in that regard. But, but I want to go back to professional development. I don't, you know, when I started in higher ed, before I even started at Drexel, I was Drexel's first social media hire. I was the first wave of social media managers hired at JS. We're going to have some fun, hopefully, talking about that. But 
I got asked, do you want to go to this conference eight days after you start? And I went to CupRap, which is the um, uh, College and University Public Relations and Associated Professionals. I'm now on the board. I have not missed the conference since. That was transformational for me. I was in higher ed for eight days. Um, I'm not sure if I've had the capability as a leader in higher ed to offer that same paying it forward at the onset as part of the onboarding for my staff. And it's something that, you know, I've really struggled with over the years. And I think that a lot of people listening to this be like, yeah, I feel the same way. Oh, oh, for sure. We could talk about this all day. Like half of the reason why I tweeted, started tweeting as much as I do <laughs> is because I wanted to find ways to have professional development, to reach out to other people and talk to other people. I couldn't go to conferences so I could get on the Twitter back channel of a conference and learn that way. Like so hungry to learn more and have professional development when that those dollar signs weren't there. And like also putting myself out there so I could, you know, get presentations accepted and then get a discount and actually be able to go to the conference. Uh, for those of us, especially working in digital fields that are changing daily, daily, like we need to have that professional development be part of our jobs and we need, we need the money for it. It's just, it's got to happen. Professional development is so important to me. And I've, I think that higher ed's done me right. Le Temple paid for me to go to Leadership Academy for a year where they pick some leaders across the university. I think there's a cost associated. And one Friday a month, you're learning about NASA, how they do things, about conflict avoidance. And then we did a, a review. I grouped up with people who are all smarter than me and reviewed the RCM budget model of our university and presented it to Deloitte Touche. I learned so much from that. During the pandemic, I found myself seeking out professional development from Joel and, and JS and, and people like you who are on Twitter um, and the internet elsewhere. I, I found myself finding that community amongst people who are all over the nation kind of struggling with the same thing. And I feel like at the same time, people started having the bravery, huh, bravery, <laughs> to, um, <laughs> to actually put it out there. And... I, I wrestled with this. Had I not been at that point in my career where I was comfortable enough to ask those questions publicly, would I have gotten not just the commiseration, but the support? So, so let's be honest, Jess. My DMs, if I go back over the years, you and I confided in each other about some yeah. very, very real things. If I hadn't been in a point in my career where I felt comfortable messaging you. Cause I think I'm the one, I think I probably reached out first, you know, it's not a game. It's not a contest. Um, would I have been able to benefit from your sound judgment? You know what I mean? And then I looked at my younger, more junior s staffers. It was like, they don't have this opportunity. And that really is something I was hard to reconcile. That That's something. Yeah. I, I kind of think about a lot because I feel like there is an element of privilege that goes alongside like what I tweet out and have tweeted out in the past where it's like, I don't like this term. And, and a lot of people are talking and don't like it either, like quiet quitting. But like, there does come a point when you're just like, you know what, if I tweet this and I lose my job over it, I can find something else. And I kind of got to that point where it's just like, hey, you know, I can I can say what I want. And and maybe say what other people are saying, because I have this privilege, too, of like it can be a little bit more open and then other people might 
in those DMs reach out and go, yeah, I'm not going to say this publicly, but yeah, I totally know what you're going through. Um, so kind of wielding that that uh, tool in a responsible, helpful way um, is, is, is something I think about quite a bit. I think that there's an immense amount of personal responsibility that comes from putting yourself out there too. Like for me, when I started writing for Inside Higher Ed, I got really involved with Volt when Volt kicked off. You know, I did have internally folks come to me being like, are you sure you want to be putting this stuff out there? And to me, there wasn't a question. It was not only am I sure, but I do think that this actually serves my team as much as it serves any personal brand that, that I, you know, I'm very late to understanding brand and marketing. I didn't study this stuff in school. I studied philosophy and English. So like I, I, I was finding my way, but I believe at the same time with so many others. So I felt like part of this club and I've never been a joiner. I think the three of us probably come from a, a similar place in our heads where if we're not doing something to try and push forward our colleagues and push forward the industry in general, then like what is it really worth just like, spinning our wheels just to like i don't know maybe maybe it's this whole ambition can't wait thing resonating with me right now but like i've always been an ambitious person like i don't i don't see much value in just being in higher ed and keeping quiet and keeping my head down and working away on the things that someone else tells me to do i think I think some of us have some of us have to play that role to kind kind of nudge or just full on shove the industry forward so that it it can be better. But also like those are the employees you want. The people that are like tweeting about you know their their Instagram insights <laughs> during, you know, their off hours. Like that that's a social media hire you want to make, right? You shouldn't be afraid of that. Like you, you should be encouraging that and like encouraging them to go out. We, we talked about this on last week's episode, like encouraging people to go out and present. And those, those things are, are really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and th- th- when we talk about this resignation or exodus, like it, it, let's, let's look at the meaning of, of resignation, the acceptance of something undesirable, but inevitable. So for someone like me, it's very hard for me to reconcile that this was inevitable because it was, you know, know, this was, you know, we, we do have an industry that, you know, I've, this weekend I was, I was talking to my neighbor who's, who's in healthcare and we always compare eds and meds to each other. And we were talking about what is the other industry that higher ed resembles? And, you know, I think what we arrived at is the auto industry. You know, there's a lot written about the auto industry, you know, back in the 70s about how it had gotten bloated and had refused to, you know, change and how European and Asian car manufacturers started making vehicles that were more efficient, smaller. And then it was like, oh, well, ours, you know, don't break and the parts are are cheaper and let's ride that out. And then other things happen, innovations. And then what happens? You know, so, yeah. you know, so in higher ed, it was it's it's tough because. I hate the word exodus. You know, I don't feel like I left, by the way. You know, now I just get to work with more brands. But it implies this running away from that doesn't sit right with me. I think for me, it's more of a, I got to peer over the fence and see the landscape. And, you know, once I saw that, I started caring much more about the landscape than a single institution, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, I mean, that that resonates with me in terms of why I left my last university job, you know, 10, 
10-ish years ago. Um, and yeah, it came down to, I felt like I had done everything I could there and I cared more about what all of higher ed was doing and knew that what I was doing at the institution that I was at wasn't really going to affect anything else. And so having, I mean, maybe I'm just power hungry, but having that wider sphere of, of influence and impact, I think was, was attractive to me. And that's, and that's why I've stayed in, in this industry. And I remember moving to Austin in 2012 and making tech friends and having all them be like, why do you work in higher ed? <laughs> and you know, like, well, <laughs> there's a few reasons. <laughs> that really kind of brings us around to one, one of the things we want to talk about today in, and, and the fact that like, I don't think it's so much, but we, we can, we can float around like being ambitious people or our leaders or being good at what we do, like, but not having a clear path up the ladder of knowing what your next step is like for people who are, you know, very talented and passionate about what they do. It's not so much that, Oh, I want to get to the next level to make more money. I want to be able to do more things and I want to make more, not make more creatively, not, yeah, we want to make more money too, but no, no lie about that. But like, we want both. We want we want that fulfillment. We don't want to just be like, okay, well, I'm going to sit here for the next five years doing the same thing and fighting the same battles. Like, eventually, those people are going to leave. So, what uh, sort of things can we do? You know, we're talking about how other higher ed marketers have been treated, and and, and what what can we do to make this better? For, for, for those that are still working on campuses? What can universities do? So I've been thinking a lot about this lately and something that, you know, I, I'm hoping you two would want to share. Something that I, you know, as an ex-reporter, I always just want to get to the heart. You know, I want to have the crucial conversation. It's something that isn't talked about a lot, our feelings. Um, so we, we don't talk about the the mourning period you go through when you make that realization, Joel, that, that, that you just brought up. So I want to ask both of you, because Jess, I've heard you talk about it as well. You know, when you finally get to that decision, and that's an iterative process, it's almost like going through the forms of grief. And let's be clear here, this is not war. You know, we're not saving lives in higher ed marketing. You know, sure. let's be honest. But did you did you both have to grapple with this feeling of, you know, I want to help, but I feel like I'm letting xyz down did you go through that oh for sure <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> I, I i it was coming to the decision to leave higher ed was was a tough one like and i wasn't sure i was going to leave higher ed i just i just knew like okay what i'm doing right now is not working for me you know from a professional standpoint from a fulfillment standpoint from definitely a pay standpoint i mean that was a factor in it where it was like man i'm not only stressing out about work and crisis calm i'm actually stressing out about you know paying the bills this month um so all of those things kind of combined to create a perfect storm and not getting that the you know sort of feeling like i was appreciated and supported you know there were people around me that were very supportive you know your direct supervisors and whatnot but then like as the institution as a whole it's just kind of like oh okay well you one social media management was still seen like it's a specialist role and, and and granted like as you have those little rankings of title job titles like it's harder to get into meetings and it's like hey this is really important i am controlling the crisis communications on social media you need to hear it i don't need to be playing the telephone tag of like translation up the ladder um i'm going like off the rails <laughs> you've like opened up the old wounds here but like 
it, and then like actually making that decision was like, man, you know, leaving higher ed, like this is something like, I think people that stay in it and are in it for a long time, all, all three of us and, and, and more, like we, you don't stay in it that long if you don't believe in the mission. You don't think like, you're actually helping uh, your institution and your community as a whole. So it, it, it is it's tough to make that 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 call, as I think we all know. It was different for me. I mean, I, I left my last university role. I was pretty young. I, mean, I was 28. Um, and I was more exhausted than anything. And probably, you know, I don't want to say I was arrogant. I was very, very confident in the work that I did. And I knew, like, it was really low hanging fruit stuff. So like, I didn't really feel like I need like, I didn't need like a, a, I didn't need like an MBA to do the stuff that I was doing, uh, at this university. Um, but I just, I had gotten to the point over two years where I had accomplished more than I should have in two years, um, for sure. And had run myself into the ground. Um, I was exhausted. I, the only people I felt like I might be letting down were like my, my couple of teammates, um, that I had developed really good relationships with and, and good friendships. Um, but I also knew their quality level and they didn't need me to keep doing good work. And I wasn't really like, I, I felt more of a collaborator with them than someone that was, you know, supporting their, their quality level. And so leaving that university to me felt, it felt more like, I was lifting everyone else up, I guess, or at least like I had the potential to do that. So I, I just, I fought, I had to fight for basic, basic things nonstop. I mean, I think that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even after proving myself if after two years, it's just like, why am I dealing with this? Like I've, I could do like, I had a, a pretty healthy, like side freelance uh, thing going on where I was building band websites and like, you know, like working with, uh, working with like random small businesses like I can, this could probably sustain me if I lived somewhere cheaper, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, moving into moving to starting an agency, uh, you know, like a lot of that was just based on this feeling of having a network already knowing what I could do and, and knowing that I knew higher ed, at least, you know, at the time I knew the higher ed landscape pretty well and could offer, I think, you know, similar to what you said, Joe, like you get to work with a lot more brands. Like that was, I just wanted projects. I wanted to work with a lot of different, a lot of different institutions on a lot of different projects and do a lot of different stuff because it sounded more fun. And, uh, you know, and use that, that freshly minted master's degree that I got. <laughs> so I just think it's such a personal thing. Like, and I feel like there's been a lot of conversation. I listened to the one with Steve and Steve's a real good friend of mine too, when, when he's on Thought Feeder. And, you know, for me, you know, I think everybody wants the people who quote left to have some soundbite where we're able to maybe quote Jeff Salingo or say the right thing and then contextualize what we, what we want to say. And for me, it's much different. It's very emotional. And, you know, what it comes down to is that it's okay to change your mind when the circumstances have changed. And that's a grace that I feel like no matter what industry you're in, you need to afford yourself. And it, it affected parts of my life that made me really need to look inward. And that's why I think it's a personal thing. That's why I don't like the word, the great, the, the phrase, the great resignation or exodus, because it's got these implications that I, my reason wasn't 
really idiosyncratically mine. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think a lot of people came to different realizations all at the same time. It kind of got lumped into this thing. But like, yeah, everybody's that I've talked to, his choice has been different based on their circumstances and, and what they wanted to do and where they were at and how the pandemic affected them and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I think it w- was a moment, like like you said, where everybody got a chance to kind of peer over the fence and go, oh, okay. You know, and most people were like, yeah, yeah, I, I like what I see. <laughs> and we saw, we so many of us saw it coming, like this competition and choice conundrum that higher ed's been in, you know, this need to to add more colleges within universities, more degree programs to then more law schools, more medical schools, you know, more uh, staff to 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 facilitate these things existing, then more research, more research expenditures, more aid, obsessive compulsive disorder when it comes to rankings that are at odds with how young people rank us, and then there's you know, then you look inward at an organization and go, how is this not? G- not going to reach some kind of climax you know the writer in me i was like i you know this this is pretty shakespearean you want me to referee this uh this fight on airport uh billboard advertising (laughs) oh are we really gonna get into that i'm here to referee a a small uh we'll we'll call it a, a a disagreement that the two of you had on on the old twitters uh, specifically <laughs> when JS cited the irrationality of airport advertising for colleges and universities. Like the, the, I think in particular, JS, you're talking about like the bigger one, not like the small little signs, but like those, Both. All, sub, of all of it. Okay. Not just like the subway style. <laughs> it's expensive. It's really expensive. And I, I was, I was going through the air when my first post COVID trips and seeing all the airport advertising for universities that, one, frankly, looked all kind of the same. You can't really tell like which is <laughs> for which university. <laughs> and just the fact that there's so much going on, people who are just ignoring them and like <sighs> thinking, knowing the cost of what a not so good placement in an airport in a small regional airport cost. And thinking like, okay, ex- Multiply that times 10 to be in a really good location in a major airport, how much further that money would go in social ads and like, I, and I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a let Joe defend, defend, defend it because I, I do see value in out of home, but I, I think Joe knows it better than I do. So like, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> like, like why? It's just so much money. It's so much money. Okay, so one, if I'm going to have this argument with anyone, I'd like that I get to have it with you. You're so emotional <laughs> about it, though. Like, I just feel like I feel like I've tickled the dragon here. So let's see. Let's see. If we will walk this back. So nobody reads ads. People read what interests them, and sometimes it's an ad. And that's that's a, a quote from Howard Gossage, this old madman from San Francisco, who's like the goat of copywriting, right? So. Let's, so we've got traditional media. Let's talk. Let's not make it about airports. I, I think the same about billboards. So All right, but I, I mean traditional versus digital media. I think to some extent, let's see if we can agree about this. No matter how you shake it, that you're throwing to some extent something at a wall, and it, you need it to stick. So it depends on the wall and who's seeing it, and the weather and the news. And good advertising 
is built on good strategy. Now, hear me out because I know JS is already going to jump on me. (laughs) So, so it's, if that strategy includes an origin story and weather and seasonality and who walks and drives by it and what they're consuming in the media and how they're consuming it. And then what is the difference at the bottom between digital and traditional really tactically we execute it differently. But if the argument is about cost, then what we need to do is a fixed cost to what the goal is. Because I do think that JS, when it comes to your argument about, you know, for the dollar, digital wins, right? But what if what if your goal is that if I want somebody in Arkansas to get a degree from Drexel University or Temple University, the two universities I've worked for, they need to know what a Temple University or a Drexel University is. Is the same execution of those media dollars digitally going to get me awareness amongst the influencers of that decision? And that that's an argument I'm willing to have. You see, the problem, Joe, is that you are thinking rationally and logically and strategically <laughs> about out-of-home <laughs> advertising and not... Every other university in the state has a billboard on this bridge, <laughs> so we have to no, have I ours there too. <laughs> Which I think is 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 the reasoning for so much out of home advertising and airport advertising in particular. Like, of oh, okay, well, board of trustees member got off the plane and saw an ad for X Y Z University and not ours, and they're upset. <laughs> and we've got to spend we've got to spend how many thousands of dollars per year just to make this one person happy. Uh, I don't, you know, but I agree. Like when you look, zoom out and say, okay, how are we telling a story? How are we, you know, making this appealing instead of letting faculty Senate decide on what gets featured on the billboard because we're not doing research enough. Maybe we actually give people to tie it back to the beginning of this debate, like what people interest people and they actually want to read and see. So they'll pay attention to the billboard. And also something that I want to say about, about you is that you're so good at what you do, right? And you're so digital focused, but I also, you know, Lie down in my in my chair. I'm going to uh, psychoanalyze you for a second. Um, I do believe that when you do that in a vacuum and you're not part of the same team as the earned media people and you're not part of the same team as the other paid media, the traditional media, or the individual program uh, managers who are in some uh, universities all over the nation – told, hey, you need to do digital advertising for this program, and they don't know what they're doing. That speaks to organizational issues, right? So when I address this, it comes from that point of view of being on a team where I was responsible for all paid media at Drexel University. It took me and another AVP getting together who did all the enrollment. Like he, his office covered the comms plan, you know, thousands of emails to make that freshman class every year took us coming together saying like, let's align here. And the point would be to connect your traditional media to your digital media, to your social media and to your earned media. Ambition can't wait. Something that I didn't bring up earlier was built on the back of our earned media strategy. All of those pillars, brand pillars that those earned media uh, uh, personnel are going out pounding pavement, trying to get, placements for that's what the campaign was built on it's all connecting the dots 
and then social kind of followed suit. But, but Jeff, I get your point. I can't argue with the ridiculous cost differential from placing social ads to doing a New York Times full pager in the Sunday magazine. But it speaks to the difference, like when you see it done well, right? How much more it stands out from the rest? Because you can spot, like you're driving down the street and you see those billboards and you're just like, yeah, somebody with a very important title wanted that, <laughs> like versus the, oh, that's a really effective ad. Um, and that, you know, makes me want to learn more. I really want to talk about a campaign that I'm seeing in Austin that's surprising, if that's cool. <laughs> so, uh, so y'all know Austin is, has gotten very expensive, uh, in the last several years. We are essentially becoming, you know, San Francisco junior, uh, Bay Area junior with all the tech companies moving here and most of their staff moving here. Um, there have been billboards up along the main freeways here for the state of Ohio trying to poach people away from Texas and away from Austin in particular to the to the state of Ohio and their cities. And they're using they're using uh, actually pretty aggressive language like, uh, you know, keep Austin weird, like cost of living is really high. So move to Ohio like that, that sort of stuff. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I remember them popping up and being like, Ohio's advertising here. <laughs> That's just really strange. Um, and, um, I would, I would love to see data on that. I want to know how well those are performing because I know a lot of people that have moved here from Ohio, but I don't know as many people moving back to Ohio, <laughs> at least not for the reasons the state wants them to. I'm going to have to look up pictures of that, of those billboards. So, cause something I don't know about, about you guys, but I am, I will put my life in danger driving and take pictures of billboards. I do it all the time. I'm obsessed. And and I've got many people I'll text them to and be like, what do you think? I will do the same. <laughs> like, oh, the, I'll, I'll drive by it like five times and like try and find like a spot I can get a good good picture. But that doesn't always work. I also remember this was, a, this was during the pandemic, but down kind of near my house on the east side, which is like the cool side, the cool part of the city. Um, like I, I want to say it was like Belmont, but maybe it was another, it might've been another B university had put up, uh, billboards about trying to attract musicians to their, their music programs. <laughs> I was like, that's interesting on the East side where none of these people could afford to live. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> so what you're bringing up speaks to, you know, know your market. <laughs> <laughs> Know the demographics, the geographics of, of where you're you're placing these things. I mean, I mean that is an issue. That's definitely an issue, and that's why I think you know, let's bring this up. I think that something that should be operationalized in budgets across the board is market research. So I feel like universities, like once every five years or so, make realize that they need to do a couple things. You know, redo the website, which is never done, and why it's it? Why does it need to be this vicious, vicious circle? where website redesigns or upgrades or whatever we call them makes everyone crazy. Yeah, throw a half a million dollars into this every five years and it doesn't actually do what it's supposed to do. And and everyone's stressed out on top of the rest of their work the whole time. And then market research, not just having a baseline understanding of uh, nationally or in the markets you want to be in. Do What do people know about you? But also what media are the people who you want to know about you consuming and use that to inform where you place media. 
Yeah. You know, that's that that's the other part too. That's really, really, really necessary when it comes to the placement of the traditional advertising. That brings us to another thing. As we talk about marketers leaving and leaving higher ed or leaving their universities, a lot of them, you know, are going to agencies like, you know, <laughs> and, and as higher ed marketing offices start to shrink a bit because either, you know, they're not getting that funding or they can't find people, they're leaning more on to agencies and having to have a tighter, closer relationship with agencies. And sometimes those relationships are really good and sometimes they're a little contentious. So how can high, folks still working on college campuses work really well together with their agency and get the best work out of them for their universities? Long before I worked for an agency, I was always impressed with how agencies were structured. I've written about it before. I think I wrote something for Inside Higher Ed about how we should all we could all take a nod from the project manager and the strategist. It gets a little ridiculous in higher ed how there's an assistant director of everything, yeah, um, and then an associate director, and then a manager of, and and these are sometimes specialists, sometimes generalists. It doesn't matter because they're in a lane. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and what I was always enamored by especially when it became my job to manage the relationships with agencies of record. We had one at Drexel for all search engine marketing, Sierra Interactive. Uh, you know, Will Reynolds is a genius. I, I miss my meetings with him, actually. And then Lev Lane Advertising in Philadelphia was for all other media for us. In my relationships with, with our, these agencies, I, I felt like they were part of my team as much as the people on my team. And I felt like I was learning, in some cases, more for, from them externally than I was internally. And I was learning about how they were structured, how they how they would ramp up resources to meet our needs, how we would have conversations about, oh, we're going to need some more project management of this one. And I started, that was part of me peering over the fence, I think. And I, I'm sure there's other people who had similar kind of you know, comings to Jesus about this. I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you work with the agencies and you see, okay, well, they've got this together a little bit. You know, what are they doing differently? And, um, you know, how can we how can we use some of that in our own experience and 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 make that internalize that for our department? Um, yeah, but it can also be a little tough sometimes too, because like when you get those big meetings with other stakeholders in the university they don't really know how to talk to the agency and 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 under, understand it so if having that translation up the chain of command can be so difficult too and i think that's something a lot of people struggle with somehow i found myself only wanting to be in those conversations yes like i want to be in the room with the trustees and and with the the people who are making the decisions to talk about this and that's when that's when I knew that I had reached a, a personal growing point with me because those are things that let's let's be honest like when you're coming up in higher ed you're f afraid of these people <laughs> you're afraid of those conversations in the beginning because you, you know you hear stories it becomes like this like uh, it's the stuff of myth and folklore this is like way 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 back for me like one of my early days in higher ed marketing where a vp did not like what the agency had come up with and suggested their own changes and it was my job to go meet with the agency and tell them all the changes this vp wanted that i knew in my head were bad 
and not the right thing to do. And I had to kind of look the fool and go, well, we need to do the X, Y, and Z because. <laughs> There's a lot of apologizing, right? You're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't say it. Like, we have all come to this decision. It's not just an individual VP who is being demanding, despite the fact that you know, we had agreed on doing this for months ahead of time. So, yeah, I think that that's um, letting the marketers run the marketing, I think, comes back to the uh, the crux of of a lot of the problems in higher ed marketing. Right. And you know what, though? And this speaks to some stuff that I've seen, Joel, that you've been putting out there on the Twitter, too, is that there's not a silver. It's not just empowering marketing or like even making changes to the organizational structure of marketing teams. It's also integrating marketing with other areas. It's also the tethers to student life, to student affairs, to academic affairs, you know, all these things that marketers are historically scared to death to even touch, you know, they're not now. And now it's marketers going like, Hey, we, over the past two and a half years, we've had a lot of people who have been talking about, you know, racial injustice and you know social justice and activism and this is something that historically is like oh let's put this off to media relations and crisis comms yeah. it's not crisis comms anymore when this is every day it's no longer crisis it's just normal comms now <laughs> and what it spoke to is this deficiency in our organizations to align and make these what we call skunk works projects if it's something that you need to happen on a daily basis you should not be doing some basement like shh, we're not telling anyone that we're doing this it should be operationalized but joe wasn't having cmos supposed like report directly to the president supposed to fix all of that like wasn't it supposed to make marketing like wasn't that the silver bullet like make marketing just more central to the entire organization and and fix all these systemic problems that have built up over the last you know 50 plus years with it's a conversation that i feel like i have had you know, 30 times over the last 16 years about how marketing needs to be infused in all of these things. It's like, hey, you know what's helpful for for student life? It's if they feel like they're cared for. And you know what can go a long way in doing that? Like a little bit of marketing actually can help a lot and not, you know, not people that don't know how to communicate, people that know how to do it and know how to, you know, affect uh affect people's perception of what's going on and, and, you know, kind of try to guide the conversation a little bit, but you know, like no one's paid enough in a marketing team to handle both all of the external and all of the internal stuff that's happening. You have one person for in, internal comms, right? And it's internal comms. They're essentially a traffic manager and it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like it, it just, it points, it keeps pointing back to what you were talking about needing to to have this reassessment and you know loving reorgs because there is a there's a real benefit to reorganizing if you know what you're doing yeah so one of my concerns about the cmo the status of the cmo in higher ed and there's people like angela pollock who's doing great things at LaSalle who did a dissertation on them um is that i think in large measure higher ed has rejected the organ of the cmo yeah but as we've seen some cmos make some success what are we seeing we're seeing cmos who have a modicum of success and then they, they go well, okay we're going to give you enrollment too yeah and my concern about this is that higher ed likes to build a lot of towers and i want to see more horizontals that that cut across the verticals and i think that that's the issue it's like you do a good job 
we're going to make this report to marketing. Just like 15 years ago, marketing reported to advancement. That was the model in higher ed. I'm concerned that we're seeing other towers get built and not other horizontals. The industry just can't seem to break free of that traditional org structure mentality. Like they, I don't, I, and I don't, I don't know what change. I have like suspicions about what could help change that. And like, I, I kind of hope this younger generation of leaders that are, that are kind of coming into some of the vacuums that have been left are, uh, are the people to do it. But I also don't know that they come from the right generation of thoughtful marketer, strategic marketer, strategic, even just strategic uh, ops type of background as we want them to, because a lot of those people stay outside of higher ed. Joel, did you actually study marketing? Yeah. So my undergrad was, uh, it was a, a hybrid marketing PR communication degree. So um, it was like a few business classes, a whole lot of marketing. Um, and yeah, that, so it was, it was basically, it was originally, it was called media promotions. It was a bachelor of science in media promotions, which was within the communication department. And it was, I was going to go in the music industry. Like that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so that's what I studied. Um, but like it was, it was more on the creative side of, of business and the creative side of PR and communication. And so it kind of served me well going into a web role. And then uh, my master's degree is in media studies, but all that was focused on digital culture, culture creation. And so the, I, you know, it wasn't a lot of people hear media studies. They think, Oh, you're watching a bunch of movies and stuff. I didn't take those classes. <laughs> I took the classes that were, uh, you know, studying semiotics and, uh, and, and how to, how to communicate well and how to do more creative work and just applied that to the, you know, the, the six or seven years that I had in, doing marketing, I felt like I needed more of that theoretical background. So kind of like a kind of marketing background, sort of like, <laughs> well, that's cool. That just it sounds like something I'd love to study. Now I was the opposite though. I studied, I majored double major in philosophy and fiction writing and, and minored in history and bartended for a very long time um, afterwards and then kind of sought out higher ed. And the only way that I got in was because I happened to be in publishing right when print died and raise my hand to be like, I, I, we should have some social media accounts here. And then kind of became that first wave. Okay, so let's talk about being that first wave social media manager. So I was the first full-time social media manager, not at one, but two universities. Uh, and it's a stepping into that role after it being, and I, I would say for both universities, it was late in coming of, of making that hire. But stepping into that role and having to write the ship and kind of set up, you know, procedures and policies as, as you're 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 flying it. To mix metaphors, is, is really it's, it's tough. It's no easy task. So, Joe, tell tell me a little bit about about you you doing that. So when I started in higher ed, it was like end of 2010, 2011, beginning of twenty eleven. I was I to my knowledge, I think I was Drexel's first social media hire, and I was for the business school. And as you you know, business schools kind of do things first. Um, so there wasn't somebody, I believe, on the central team running the university's accounts who was specifically doing social. At the time, I think it was still being managed by the media relations uh, director. And I just remember having these conversations that now I think are kind of funny, where it would be like winter break and, and my boss would We'd, we'd be having that last meeting before the break and it would be, you know, so just turn it off, relax, you know, don't worry. 
and and I would have to like go into his office and be like, you do know that I'm going to have to be on social every day over break. And I was like, no, you don't have to do that. I'm like, no, I do have to do that. That's part of my job. <laughs> but, but, you know, those conversations hadn't been had yet. And I think that, that it's my biggest pain points were that people always thought that social was me disseminating information. We used to talk about it. Like if it's not driving traffic back to your website, then it's a tree falling in the forest. <laughs> and I remember coming up with this, this like analogy that like, it used to be that you had to drive everyone back to Rome. And I got, I was getting all historical, but now <laughs> social is Constantinople. There's two popes. And, and, <laughs> and I got a little, got a little, out of my mind with the analogies here. Maybe it's you know, the fact that I was, you know, a, a guilty, you know, a Catholic. But um, I, I just remember really hard trying to get people to understand that it wasn't just dissemination; it was engagement. And I still think that our teams are having those problems. And it's hard to come in and be like, "All right, I'm I'm running the social show now. Um, we're not posting that, <laughs> even though I am still in a I, I'm a specialist role." And way down the chain, uh, I am taking total ownership of this and saying no. Like, I think that was like the biggest thing for me. I was like when I got that first role was like, you know what? I control this. <laughs> I probably said no a lot more than I should have. I made some of my biggest mistakes saying no, though. The first thing I did was I got rid of 33 social accounts and said that these don't need to exist. And if I could go back in time, hate having regrets, I would have proven my value before telling people no but i was you know trying to you know do do things the right way and there was no playbook at the time and that that's what it comes down to you're trying to do things the right way and sometimes saying no is is doing that and yeah probably need a little bit more diplomacy before like i, I think my big mistake like my first week is like i i told the president's office like no we're not deleting that we do not delete anything <laughs> You know? Do you remember Jess having to like bone up on like First Amendment? Like I remember getting so freaked out. I was at a conference and Mark Weaver, who's this great lawyer who advises universities when they're in the throes of crisis. I remember him talking about First Amendment on the internet and coming back and be like, "We're never deleting anything ever again." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, working both. You know, every institution I worked in was state funded and worked. You know, for the Texas Department of and had to learn all all of that stuff of of like what you can and can't do and blocking and all of that. So, yeah, it's tough being the first person in that role to like, okay, to look at. There, there's no playbook. I just think social media. You know, I, there's a soapbox that I've often stood on and JS we. We've talked about this on the internet, but uh, it's such it's the most misunderstood position on higher ed Marcom teams. It's misunderstood, underutilized, underresourced. It should be have a seat at every table. It is a horizontal, um, and it it's it's a shame that it hasn't been embraced the way that it needs to be. Not just as a bucket, but as again as something that cuts through the buckets and we could talk about that all day but we are we are sadly towards the end of our time so joe tell us where people can find you plug those pluggables for us all right well the first thing i'll say is that i've been at ology for a while now and i've been having such a great time so first i would say you can find my mug on ology.com that would be the first place to go to but also i'm um, joseph j master on twitter and you know 
I'd love to talk to you there. And the three of us will keep talking there for sure. Oh, indeed. Yes, we will continue this conversation. So look, look for us on Twitter. Uh, feel free to, 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 to drop us a line or question there. Thank you so much for listening to the Thought Feeder podcast. And a very, very special thanks to Joe Master for being with us today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for having me, the two Jays. I'm glad I got to be the third Jay here today. You can find uh, Joe online. He already told us uh, where to go. Find him at Ology. Find him on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at ThoughtFeedPod or on our website, thoughtfeederpod.com, where we've got transcripts for every episode and uh, some other things. I don't know. We should probably put some writing on there, but you can see, you know, JS's face and my face and speakers' faces, people that have been on this show. Uh, But definitely visit thoughtfeederpod.com. Thoughtfeeder is produced and edited by Carl Grashett and hosted by John Steven Stansel and me, Joel Goodman. And if you're a fan of the show and are feeling generous, we'd really appreciate a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. It really helps other people find us and helps us just feel good about the content we're making. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 